This morning is January 23rd. It's Sunday morning. Our topic this morning is death, death, death to life. Uh, we're going to start in Isaiah. And as is usual, there was somebody I was thinking about when I was looking at this scripture in Isaiah. And I'll be gosh darned. I guess a preacher can say that. If every time I have a particular verse in mind and want to share it, <laughs> that person's not here. <laughs> you know? uh, but I think this will bless you too. Turn to Isaiah 44. <clears throat> oh, while we're here, might as well turn to Isaiah 43 too. In Isaiah 43, starting with verse 8. Y'all there? This is on page 805 in the Thompson chain. I'm going to read you three scriptures from Isaiah, and I'm going to try not to lose the point in these three as, as I read them, because these are awesome, awesome promises that mostly relate to the nation of Israel and something God said would happen, and then it happened. And if I'm not careful, I will chase this rabbit right into all the promises about Israel. The larger point that I'm hoping that you get from this is a statement God's making about His character, something you can trust in, something you can build faith upon. Starting in verse 8 of Isaiah 43, Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witness to prove they were right so that others may hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? Now, you could get a lot of things from what I just read, but here's what I want to emphasize to you. He says, I want you to gather the nations. Get everybody out there that's got a set of ears but doesn't seem to be able to hear my voice. Get everybody out there who has a set of eyes but just can't see what is plain before them. What other God has there ever been? You can go consult all of the nations. What other God has there ever been that proclaimed it ahead of time so that you would believe Him when it came about? Israel, you are my witness to this fact. The things that I have told you would happen, did happen. Go consult the other nations and see if there's been such a God among them. That's the idea. Isaiah goes to this well more than once. Turn to Isaiah 44. in Isaiah 44, starting around verse 24. Y'all, this don't read this. Just hold it there, but don't read this. This one scripture is so powerful in the book of Isaiah. And let me tell you why. Isaiah is written somewhere around 740 years before Jesus ever lived. Okay? In 580 B.C., what do we know happened to Israel? There was a Babylonian captivity. Okay, And I know this is not history class, but you have to know some history for the Bible to make sense. If God proclaims things and then they're recorded in history so that you can look and say, wow, he proclaimed it and it happened and it builds your faith, sometimes you have to know what happened in history. Well, somewhere around 740 B.C., Isaiah makes this declaration that something is going to happen. Okay, Most of the book of Isaiah is about two captivities, an Assyrian captivity and a Babylonian captivity. Then he proclaims what's going to happen after the captivity. This is remarkable because this happens in 740 B.C. and these events don't happen until 580 B.C. and 510 B.C. Make sense? Okay. Or thereabouts. Forgive me if I'm rounding dates. So in 44 verse 24, This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself who foils the signs of false prophets and make fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, 
who carries out the words of his servants and who fulfills predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be built and of the ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, if this is not underlined in your Bible, underline the word Cyrus. If you don't write in your Bible, you need to start. He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Isaiah's writing 740 B.C. about a time when the temple will be destroyed, when Israel will go into captivity, and he names the guy in history who will issue a decree for it to be rebuilt and says that it will be rebuilt. Get this. There's a temple in Israel. Israel is there. They're going about their daily business. Isaiah's been prophesying, hey, you're going to be taken off into captivity. You're going to experience desolation. This is going to happen. They're not believing or accepting that message. He goes a step further and he says, and then, after all of that, I'm going to use a guy that I'm going to call my shepherd. His name will be Cyrus. And he will issue a decree for it to be rebuilt. And Jerusalem and Judah will again be inhabited. They weren't uninhabited at this point. But God announced ahead of time their destruction and the rebuilding, and He named the ruler who did it. I bring all this up because I've been asked recently several times, if there is this kind of warfare in the heavens, if there is this struggle, if God's will is not always done, if sometimes people don't pray it through and things don't happen the way God said, how can we know that God's going to win? How can we know that His promises are true? The Jews have a concept. Let's turn to one more scripture and I'll show you. My afro fell off, huh? I'm going to just leave it off. We'll see. Uh, the afro is the little thing on the end of the mic, by the way. In Isaiah 46, he says this uh, very clearly. Verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all you who remain of the house of Israel, you whom I have upheld since you were conceived and have carried since your birth. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am He. I am He who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. To whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Though one cries to it, it does not answer. It cannot save them from his troubles. Remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take it to your heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. It goes on to talk about His salvation. We serve a God who declares to us the end of the matter before it even begins. You can see that in the previous Scripture in Isaiah. Before the destruction, He proclaimed it would happen and the restoration of it. So how can we know that if God promises something, it will occur? You know this based on His previous history with you. You know that He has already promised things and we have seen them come about. So when the Word teaches us something that yet lies in the future, how do you know? Well, you know because He has never let us down this far. In English, the word history, do you know where it comes from? It's His story. That's not a trite child-like saying that we teach people. That's the etymology of the Word. It's because when we tell history, the events of history, we are telling God's story of faithfulness. He said things would happen, and they did happen. This rear-view mirror approach to Bible prophecy is the way that Bible prophecy was intended. The book of Isaiah was written down so that we would see events unfold, look back and go, my God, He said it would happen, and it did. 
where we've gotten into trouble. We just had a tsunami, right? I have certain opinions about that, okay? I mean, I just do. But immediately, there are books being written about why we are now in the end times and how this tsunami shows that we are interpreting Bible prophecy based on the headlines of the day. While there may be some merit to that, most of what you should take from Matthew 24 is, and not just Matthew 24, but so many other scriptures, is the comfort that as these things have happened, you can look back and go, wow, that applies. Prophecy we have in our mind as a prediction of the future. It is on God's part, but it's interpreted in the rearview mirror. Does that make sense? Okay, now, I'm not saying that's a fundamental rule that you have to follow. I'm just telling you that at least in Isaiah, we see very much that's exactly what God said to I'm announcing this beforehand so that after it happens, you'll know. Okay? That gets you out of the box of you know, announcing future events. God can show you that, and I hope He shows you all of it. Come share it with me. If it lines up with the Word, we'll all be encouraged. But this was to build trust. I preached a message one time called Trust But Verify. Those of you who know who Ronald Reagan is, whether you esteem him or don't esteem him, he's famous for something. You know, during this nuclear disarmament that was going on, I said, well, how can we know they'll hold up their end of the bargain? And how can they know we'll hold up our end of the bargain? We say we're going to destroy ours. They say they're going to destroy theirs. But how can we know? He said, we're going to trust but verify. It's almost a contradiction in terms, isn't it? I trust you, but I'm going to verify. Our trust in God is based upon something. He has verified Himself to us many times throughout our lives and throughout history. Your trust is not blind faith. It's not unmerited. It's based on God's character. As I was describing a conversation that I had recently to Matthew, Matt looked and said, you know what's really missing? They don't yet know the character of God. He was right. You can learn all about God and learn all these things, but not yet know His character. I know God does certain things that I don't even see in the Word because I know Him. You know, I've gotten to know some of you. I know that in some situations, whether Stacy has told me this is how I will act or not, I know based on her character she will do certain things. You know that about me. Sometimes it's things I don't would rather you not know, you know. <laughs> you know. I'm happy to pass some tests today that I didn't used to uh, didn't used to pass. You know, a few weeks ago, months ago, some guy in Chick-fil-A wanted to beat me up. I'm glad that now you can know and I can know about my character that in most situations like that, I'm going to respond with something that's godly. There was a day when that was not my character. You know, it is now. I'm in the process of change. Be patient with me. Well, I say all of that to say the very first promise that God ever made to mankind had to do with the problem that had come upon mankind. There was one singular problem that didn't just affect Israel. Israel wasn't around yet. It didn't just affect North America. You know, North America wasn't around yet. There was one singular problem that affected all of mankind. And he promised something about this problem. But we are some many, 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 many years, thousands of years after it, and we have yet to see the realization of the solution. And yet we know from the character of God, we know that he announces things in the very beginning about the end and then accomplishes them, that we will see this done. And it's the hope of the Bible. Turn to Genesis. Thank you. Again, I know some of this is repetitious from Wednesday, but I figured this is the kind of repetition that does us good. Remember, God just said in Isaiah, remember the things from long ago. I'm just asking you to remember Wednesday while we go through this. Ah. <laughs> uh, I promise we're going to get to John 5 and I'm going to throw this in the John 5 series that we're teaching because John 5's topic is what we're teaching on. I've just not read you John 5 yet. In Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Let me cover a couple points here for you. One is, despite all of man's advances in the medical technology field in which I work, despite all of man's 
genetic understanding. Despite all of man's understanding and all of the sciences, we still have a 100% mortality rate. Not a human being on the earth that is not dying. Now, Jesus, or I said Jesus, God, when He spoke to Adam, when God's Word came to Adam, He didn't say, when you eat of this, you will become dead. I wished He had, you know. Maybe we would have just started over right then. He didn't, though. He said, when you eat of this, you will surely die. From the moment that Adam ate of this, the process of death began in him. Now, death is something just like sin. It can grow and it becomes more mature over time. But before we get there, before we get to mature death, before we get to the process of death, understand something. He didn't want him to eat of a tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was another tree, Matthew, the other one. But there's a reason for that. Number one, understand something. The first chapter of the Bible is not a complete story or a history of the creation. It simply says, in the beginning, there were the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, or the earth had become, or was becoming, all of those tenses were formless and void. We know that something happened there that was not perfect. I don't care whether you subscribe to a gap theory, don't, blah, 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 blah. We can argue all day about that stuff. I win, but we can't argue about it. <laughs> The fact that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil lets you know there was something in the world that was not good, right? Okay. What God basically wanted out of mankind that you need to understand because we as Christians are reverting to this earlier principle is I don't want you to take for yourselves the ability to choose between good and evil. I don't want that to come out of a man. I want man to depend upon me for that. See, before Adam took of this himself and became like God. Isn't that what the serpent said? Oh, you won't die when you do this. God knows you'll become like Him. See, man aspired to be like God or to take God-like status for himself rather than be subject to God. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Those of us that choose to be subject to God become like God. But those that tried to obtain that status themselves get thoroughly punished. Make sense? Okay. So, we got a tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God wants man to depend upon Him for it. But when man didn't, he rejected God. You're not going to be my source for that. I will be my own source for that. And the product was death. Well, that happened. We could read all of Genesis 3, but we won't because most of you know it. And if you don't know it, go home and read it. Okay? That, I mean, surely, all the times in your life that you set out to read the Bible, you made it at least to the third chapter, right? You don't have to get any further than the third chapter before the Bible begins to talk about a solution to this problem. I want you to understand there are no other problems introduced before Genesis 3. There's one problem. Man has rejected God as his source of knowledge and death has been the result. The Proverbs bear this out. This is where you... Proverbs 26, I think 19, it's in several places. It's hard for me to quote because it's in so many places. Have scriptures to this effect. There is a way that seems right to man. In the end, it leads to destruction or death. This is in the core being of us. We try to choose what is right and we mess it up constantly. We try to fix problems and we create new ones. We try to do things in our own strength and it ends up caving in on us. This is a process that sin has caused in the world that even subjects the earth itself to frustration. When you see geological changes, they say, oh, it's just plate tectonics. The Bible personifies the earth as if it were a human being and describes its behavior as frustration from sin and it longing to have its ways put in order. Now, I don't know why the Bible personifies it, but you can sure learn from it. Don't you see... Fr Anybody ever watch the National Geographic type stuff? Man, those wildebeest are running along and all of a sudden... You know, a couple of lions jump on it and it bucks them off and you're rooting for the wildebeest. Come on, you know, lions got to eat too, but you're rooting for this poor wildebeest. Then a few more lions jump on it and then it ends up in the mud or something and it can't fight them off. And you sit there and you, you want to cry and cover the kid's eyes while this thing gets eaten. That is a frustration that the creation was subject to. A process of decay and death. 
And even the creation, Romans teaches us, is longing for the day that it will be released from that bondage. I don't remember which law it is, but one of the scientific laws teaches that all things on the earth are in a process of decay, moving from a state of greater organization to lesser. It kind of flies in the face of some of the theories. It's funny. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, but science often does. I say all of this to say that from the time God said, you will die, the process of death has been growing in the world. We see this illustrated through their lifespans in the Bible. Most ancient cultures, even the Babylonian culture, and others are perversions of this truth, but teach that a long time ago, men lived longer. And then there was a point at history, right around the Great Flood, that that changed. Now, without getting into all the reasons that that's true, it's true because death was new in the world. And as it gained strength, as it gained influence over men, as it grew in opposition to God, men lived shorter times. Now, I say this because I want to introduce the problem correctly. The problem was death, and it had come upon mankind, and it was ravaging mankind. But in Genesis 3, we want to introduce the promise. Yes? That's right. The disgrace of man and death. You said, well, if I die, I want to die an honorable death. You ever heard somebody talk like that? Movies glorify Asian cultures particularly. You know, if I die, I want to die an honorable death. The problem is there's a sting of death. The Corinthians 15 teaches this. Do you know what the sting of death is? It's sin. It doesn't matter in what way your last hours are spent. If sin has not been dealt with, when you stand before God, you die twice. But that's a whole other message. So in Genesis 3, after the people have decided they want to reject God as their source of knowledge of good and evil, God comes through with this prophecy. And He's actually speaking to the serpent. Isn't that interesting? God's not proclaiming this promise to the man and the woman. Isn't that weird? God's looking right at the object that was used to bring down the crown of His creation. Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. That's probably a bad example, but y'all forgive me. The Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Instead of making a declaration to the families, instead of making a declaration to the inhabitants of the United States, this would be like the President stood up before the League of Nations or United Nations or whatever the governmental body was at the time and points to Japan and says something. This is exactly where we're at. And he says... Cursed are you above all the livestock. This is in verse 14. And the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Then he goes on to speak to the woman and he goes on to speak to the man and he tells them things. In verse 20, Adam, who has listened to everything that was said to the serpent, everything that was said to the woman, and everything that was said to him, is excited. Now, if you had just committed a sin that caused all of the human race that would come, all of your progenitry after you to live under a burden of slavery to death, would you be excited? Adam was a little sharper than you and I, though. You know? And he heard something in these declarations. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of the living. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of the living, and he named her this on the day that death entered the world. The problem in Genesis 2, the problem at the very beginning of this Bible story, is death has come upon the world. Adam, the first human being, the federal head of the human race, is standing by listening and watching these events. And he goes... Wow, Eve, did you hear that? Or wow, woman, did you hear that? You're going to become the mother of everybody who's alive. I'm going to call you Eve. Prior to this, her name had been woman. And all kind of preachers made jokes about that, so I'll spare you of that. But, yeah, wow, man. The living one. The mother of the living. Well, why? 
Because Adam understood this prophecy about a seed coming from the woman and crushing the head of the serpent who had just tricked them in their minds into death, he understood this to mean this process of death is going to be reversed. You see it right here in Genesis 3, and the Bible expounds upon this. The problem is, as the Bible expounds on this, as the funnel gets wider through history, we get caught up in all of the details about how it's done and sometimes lose the fact that it's being done. Are you all following me so far? The problem that has entered in mankind on this side of the room, if you will, is death. Now, we are going to go through history knowing that one person, a seed, is going to come from the woman's body that will conquer this power of death. But death is growing in the world until we get to a place where the seed has come, then the power of death begins to decrease in the world because he is going to put all of his enemies under his feet. So that the first book in the Bible says, you and all mankind are going to die. But the last book in the Bible says the last enemy to be put down is death. In other words, the Bible opens with the introduction of death and closes with the resolution of death. You follow me? The death problem and the life solution. Now, Adam and Eve heard this, and I imagine they were kind of excited. And what's the next part of the Bible tell you? What's the very next chapter talk about? Birth! <laughs> That's right. See, if Eve knew that something had to come from her body that would save all of mankind, she had high hopes for these kids, didn't she? I mean... When my son was born, immediately I began to think about all the things that Judah would accomplish in his life. And you have dreams. Some want doctors and lawyers. We want preachers and revivalists. But you have dreams for your children. What do you think Eve's dream for her child was? This will be the one that comes and crushes the power of death. It will be him. There's a problem though. Her first seed. She's got two boys. I mean, she got them there. She's hoping... One's a farmer. The other's a herdsman. And God speaks to Cain and He says, I see something crouching at your door. This is the problem all mankind has. There is something that is there with us everywhere we go, no matter what we're doing. I'm a salesman. You might be an architect. You might be whatever it is you are. All of us have something that is not just an occupational hazard, it's a hazard that came with our eating of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil is right there with us. We have the opportunity to choose it. And God tells Cain in Genesis 4, 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you but you must master it. So the problem that enters into Genesis early on is death is there. This knowledge that we have causes us to choose what is wrong and the result is death. And then in the first generation, when we are waiting for the Redeemer, the guy who will come and crush the enemy, Eve's excited, Adam's excited, they're looking, they're watching him, they're going, we had two, can you believe it? We had two and one of these two is going to be the one. They're waiting, they're hoping, they're excited like you were when your children were born or like your mothers were when you were born. And what happens? One kills the other one. Can you imagine the disappointment? Can you imagine the depression that could have set in? God said that there would be a promise. God said this would happen. And one has killed the other. Now, it can't happen, right? So they had other children. All women throughout history have had a natural instinct to produce this Messiah, this anointed one. We suppress it. We have all kind of issues with it. And I'm not saying everybody has to have children. I'm certainly not saying that. I'm saying there is something inherent to women to want to produce it. Okay? Eve had that. She didn't see it. So did the promise die there? No, like Isaiah said, God announced the end of the matter from the very beginning so that we would believe. Anybody have a guess as to what the oldest book in the Bible is? Most people believe it's Job. It's debatable, but I think that 
is probably true. So let's turn to Job because we've just looked at the beginning of this death problem. Let's see what the oldest book in the Bible records as a promise. Turn to Job 14. If you want to find Job, find the middle of your Bible and hang a slight right. Or left. <laughs> it's real close to the middle of your Bible. Job 14 is in the 500s of the Thompson chain and is uh, 575. We have no hymnals, but we do all have the same Bible, huh? We have to quit picking on the denominations for their hymnals and their numbers if we're going to announce page numbers. Uh, Job 14, starting in verse 7. Get this. This is a question Job asks. Verse uh, 7. At least there is hope. <laughs> At least there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, it will sprout again. And its new shoots will not fail. Its roots may grow old in the ground and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water it will bud and it will put forth shoots like a plant. But man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. As water disappears from the sea or riverbed becomes parched and dry, so man lies down and does not rise. Till the heavens are no more, men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. That's depressing, isn't it? If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me till your anger has passed. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? Do you have a question mark there in your Bible? Job's debating this thought in his mind. He wants to know. He looks at the creation. What does Psalm 19 teach you about the creation? The creation declares the wonder or glory of God. Job's looking at the trees. He's going, man, we die and I, you know, Grandma Smith died and I never saw her again. But this tree gets cut down, it rises again. You know, what's the, what's the end of this? And he begins to dwell on the promises of God. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal or restoration to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature of your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag and you will cover over my sin. Job was debating this subject in his mind and he said, man, even the trees when they're cut down, they rise again. But what about a man? Then he came to the conclusion, I'll wait for my renewal to come. Why would Job have any idea that there would be a renewal? Because all mankind held the hope that we were in bondage to death, but there would be a renewal, a restoration, a life-giving power that would come. He asked that question. He answers his own question again in Job 19. Turn with me to Job 19. He's so profoundly excited about this one as he's thinking about this, then in Job 19, verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll. <laughs> and they were. <laughs> that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Look at your footnote there. What's your footnote say? It's E. Or after I awake, or though this body has been destroyed in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Eve was promised a Redeemer would come from her body. This promise went, to Adam, uh, went from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel. In that generation, it was blown. You didn't see it because nobody mastered sin. So there was another child. You remember who was next? Seth. And then another. And then another. And then another. And for generations on, this hope went out. And some lost hold of the promise. Some people groups, as they spread out, got far away from the promise of God. And they got into lies and perversions and other things. But the problem remained. 
everyone still died. And Job is there somewhere in ancient history and he's longing for the Redeemer, the one promised Eve to come and he said with his own skin, after his skin was destroyed, he would still stand upon the earth and with his eyes and not someone else's, he would see this. The hope was alive. If you move on from Job <coughs> to the Psalms, hang the right. In the Psalms, starting in verse 16, listen to the words of David. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, starting around verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. My heart's glad, my tongue rejoices, but my body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. He said, I will rest secure in my body because you won't let me remain in the grave. You won't let your Holy One see decay. I understand now you've made known to me the path of life. What on earth could he be prophesying about? He knew that there was one. He's calling him the Holy One who would come from Eve. He knew that there would be a Redeemer that would not allow him to stay in the grave because his hope was on God's promises. And he even throws in there for good measure, you won't let him see decay. That's interesting, isn't it? Those very Scriptures are applied to Jesus in His resurrection. David said that a thousand years before Jesus ever lived. He said it 2,000 years after the promise was given to Eve. He said, well, how did mankind get in the horrible shape that it was in then? How do we have the nations all astray not serving God? Now, if that was the promise, why in every nation on the planet were people not craving, yearning for the life solution? Because they had forgotten the promises of God. They assumed they weren't coming about. The first generation, it didn't work. The second generation, it didn't work. The third, it didn't. We got so bad off that God destroyed the whole earth with a flood. Said, oh, wow, well, we got eight righteous ones. It'll start again. What happened right after the flood? Ham defiles his father. You know? You know? We, we're just off the boat. We got one drunk and the other doing something lewd. So it looked like it was failing. But God announces it in the beginning so that when it's done in the end, you can look back and say, wow, he's God. The problem is with the whole middle section, guys. We're real good right in the beginning. Oh yeah, Lord, we believe you. But you get into the middle decades, centuries, millennia, and haven't seen it happening. And what begins to happen? When God says, I do have a spouse for you. When God says, I do desire to prosper you, you will do well. Oh, in the beginning, we are so excited. Oh, yeah, He's going to do it. I got the victory, you know, and you want to run laps around. Oh, you get a few weeks into it. And, did He say? I hope He said. A few months into it, you know, that might have just been Eric that was saying that. A few years into it, eh, He ain't done nothing for me. Mankind was the same way. It's exhibited every day in our behavior. We are slow to remember the promises of God. Thank God that there have been righteous men. About every ten generations, somebody has stood up and reminded the whole world of God. Moving on from here, we have a nation of Israel. Starting in Isaiah 26. This nation that was going to bring righteousness, going to bring salvation to all of the earth. In Isaiah 26 starting on page 784, we see this disheartened attitude. This, we've been longing for salvation. And what is salvation? What's the problem? Death. So what is salvation? What is that? Life. If you want to be saved from something, the saving from that something is the solution to the problem. See, we have in our minds salvation tied up with heaven and tied up with all kind of other spiritual thoughts. If you take it to the beginning and follow it from the beginning through the end, salvation is life from death. It's what it really is. Listen to, listen to the prophet Isaiah as he says this. Starting in Isaiah 26, 15. 
You have enlarged the nation, O Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. Things are going well. You started one man, said there'd be a nation, and now we see the nation. It's growing. The borders are getting big. Your promises are working, Lord. Verse 16, Lord, they came to you in their distress when you disciplined them. They could barely whisper a prayer. Been there. As a woman with child about to give birth rives and cries out in her pain, so we were in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed in pain, but we gave birth to the wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to the people of the world. What was Israel pregnant with? What was it that Israel was hoping for? As this promise went from Eve on down and fell on Seth and then fell on Shem out of Noah's generation and progenitory. It then fell on Abraham and out of Abraham's children it fell on Isaac. And then after Isaac it fell on Jacob and said, Now, it's through this, it's through this nation that this one will come. Still going to be born of a woman, but the promise kept getting wider, all of mankind, then narrower. Then wider, then narrower as it went through history. Now we've got a whole nation and the nation has enlarged and it's really a nation. But they still have not seen the one that would come and crush the enemy. said, we thought we were going to birth salvation. We thought we were going to birth the renewal, the restoration of all things. Now do you know why the apostles are asking Jesus, at this time are you going to restore all things? You know what they call the resurrection in Israel today? The great renewal. See, our terms are different, but the idea is the same. They are waiting for the great renewal. When you speak of the great renewal in terms of a human being, they say the final renewal. In other words, you're being renewed every day. But you are going to be renewed once for all at the Messiah's coming. They're waiting for what we're waiting for, or what we should be waiting for. Thank God Isaiah didn't end this scripture here, though. But your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people, enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until wrath has passed. See, the Lord is coming out of His dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose bloodshed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. Throughout the Bible as this promise developed, the promise grew into something bigger than just life from death. And it started to include judgment for wrong actions. It started to include the oppression of the wicked as the righteous were raised up. And all of that could muddy the waters. But the reality is there was one problem, death, and one solution, life. Turn with me now to John. We could turn to a million places in Daniel, like Daniel 12, that spoke of a single day in which the dead would rise to live. Those who did good would rise and shine like stars. And those that had not done good would rise to everlasting shame and contempt. We could turn to Exodus, the beginning of Exodus, where God makes a simple statement. said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we say, well... What's so profound about that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for more than 400 years. And he didn't say, I was the God of. He didn't say, I'm the God of those guys who have passed away. He spoke about them as alive. Because in the very beginning, he had promised life. And though it had not happened yet, God spoke about it as if it had. This is not all that different than when the New Testament writers begin to speak about you as a new creation, though you look just like the old one. He's calling something in the beginning of the process as though it were already completed. Let's be honest. When you look at me, am I really righteous? No. But God has declared it so in faith we say that it is so and we work towards that goal. Make sense? In John 5, we get a handle on the problem. Incidentally, you remember that passage I was just referring to? In Exodus, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you remember an incident where Jesus discussed that with the Pharisees? It's in Matthew 22. Anybody remember it? They said, hey, well, you know, Jesus, at the resurrection, you know, all Israel had the resurrection as a hope. 
the resurrection being the time when one human being would give all human beings life from death. At the resurrection, this chick, she was married. She was married seven times. And they go through this whole long process. She said, you greatly err because you don't understand the Scriptures. See, this was the promise, but it was not understood in the Scriptures. Because of all of the details between the problem and the solution of how it would... This is progressive revelation. As God gave more of the details of the plan, people got lost in the plan and forgot the solution. So we're in John 5. Anyone I told you? Okay. Starting in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted Him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at His work. To this very day, I too am working. I don't have time to teach on the Sabbath today. We've probably only got 10-15 minutes left in this whole sermon. But this is a profound thought. You have sometimes thought of God as resting from His work on the sixth day and not returning. The reality is God made a promise after the week of creation. See, He worked for six days, rested on the seventh, and then there was a problem that was introduced to the world, right? Death. That's what we've been talking about the whole time. And from that day to the very present, God has been working for something. What is it? To fulfill His promise. See, Jesus said, the Father's working to this very day, and I too am working. Well, if the Father's working and Jesus is working, what is their work? For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. I taught on it Wednesday night, so I won't tonight. But in Jewish thought, God was a holy creator of heaven and earth, not somebody who had a personal relationship like your father. To speak of God as your father meant that you were of his substance. You were equal to him. That's not how the Jews thought about it because there was a separation between them and God which the Mosaic Law was supposed to bridge the gap. In the whole of the Old Testament, it's only a handful of times God's referred to His Father. And it's almost always David speaking prophetically about Jesus saying it. 277 times in Jesus' ministry recorded, He spoke about God as His Father. This was offensive to them. Jesus gave them this instruction, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, to your amazement, He will show Him even greater things than these. Put your finger there and hold it on verse 21. I want to tell you. What is Jesus saying when He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. This is the attitude that Adam, that Eve should have possessed in the garden. I don't want that tree. I don't want that knowledge for myself. What God tells me to do, I will do. God tells me to say, I will say. I will be led by my heavenly Father, not by my own knowledge of what good and evil is. Jesus is returning to a state before the problem was introduced. You see it reflected in everything that Jesus does. He had a firm grasp of the problem at hand. Death is ravaging the world. It is tearing the world apart. He has come to finish God's work. What was God's promise to mankind? I will provide you a seed that will crush this power. So here He is, ready to do God's work. He has rejected Adam's sin. He is allowing Himself to do only what the Father says to do. Now, what does He say the Father's going to do? For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. What is the work of the Father? To bring life to the world, and He's entrusted that task to the Son. He's given Him the ability to make all of the judgments. Why, though? The Son makes every judgment based on what He knows and sees from the Father alone. Does that make sense to you? This is why later on we get to a passage in John where where 
People are crying because death has come upon Lazarus. Jesus even cries looking at them, seeing it. And they say, well, we know, Jesus, that You can raise Him up at the last day. We know at the resurrection. And He looked right at the woman and said, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to wait for an event. You're supposed to be waiting for a person. And I am that person. You're not waiting for some messianic age. You are not waiting for some prophet's to all raise up and do something collectively, you're waiting for the seed of Eve and I am that seed. Now, I skipped all of the seeds that Abraham spoke of. See, this seed grew and we grew in our knowledge of what this seed would do throughout history and it almost becomes confusing. But even with Abraham, he had an offspring, Isaac, right? That was his offspring. But Abraham was told, you will inherit this land, you and your progenitory, forever. How could that happen? Only if they lived forever. This is why Hebrews 11 teaches us when Abraham went up on that mountain, he was willing to kill his son because he had reasoned in his heart. The whole deal is that there's death problem and God's going to bring life. So if, if I kill him, God must be going to raise him from the dead. How on earth did he know that? Because he had a firm grasp of what the problem was and what the solution needed to be. This is really uncomplicated, is it not? I mean, I can make it complicated, but there's a problem. Everybody's dying. We need the solution. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. All of mankind was under Adam in the power of death. Jesus shows up. He announces Himself to be the One. And all you have to do is believe on His Word, He's going to say, and you move into life. That's quite a statement to make. No other prophet had ever done that. How can we know that it's true? If you tell me you are the one with the power of life, the one who will crush the head of the enemy, the one that can remove death from me, What would be the best way to demonstrate it? If Diana's car is broken down, and I tell her, I can fix your car, Diana, yet I don't have a car that runs, would I be suspect? Mm -hmm. If I tell you, oh, you're blind, I will fix your eyes, and yet my eyes don't work, would I not be suspect? But if my cars do run, might Diana have a reason to believe that I could fix her car? If your eyes don't work and mine Work, might you have a reason to believe I can see something you can't? This is why Jesus laid His life down, showing He was under the power of death like everyone else, and then picked it up again, showing He had power over it. He was proving that He was that seed. He was the life solution. So here He tells them, crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear His voice and will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned." By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but Him who sent me. I spent a lot of time on that passage Wednesday night, and I don't want to today, but let me tell you this in a nutshell. He said a time is coming. There's one out there in the future, and a time has come now. The now part is you believe, you hear, and you wait. The time in the future part is He literally speaks to people who are in the grave and they literally come out. A time is coming and a time has now come. He's letting you know this is a bit of a process. I'm gathering together for myself those that believe me. Then I will come back for that which is my own and it will be accomplished. How can we know that it will be accomplished though? We know it because this is the same God who said in 740 B.C., I'll raise up Cyrus who will rebuild Jerusalem. And then after 510, he did that. Named the guy and did it. And get this, he calls him a shepherd. This man was no fan of Yahweh God. God chooses as a shepherd who he wills to choose. The guy was serving God and didn't know he was serving God. Pharaoh was an instrument of God without realizing he was an instrument of God. 
God's used people in my life that were wicked to shape me, to form me. One guy beat me so badly it changed my whole life. He didn't know he was a servant of God that night. He was, though. God does that kind of thing. How can we know that there is yet a day in the future? Why can we believe today? Because God's track record shows that it's true. Now, there's a lot more said here about testimonies. It says, you believe anybody who comes and speaks in their own name? I refuse to do that. He said, I'm speaking in the name of Him who sent me and you don't believe me. I don't want to read all of John 5 because I've got like seven or eight more minutes. But I do want to read you this. Start in verse 39. Jesus just given them three distinct testimonies of why they should believe Him. But they don't. And in John 5.39, He says, You diligently study the Scripture because you think that by them you possess eternal life. Let me ask you a question. Was Eve told, You will be given word. You'll be given books to read. And that in those books, you will find the power that crushes the enemy. He's told there would be a human being who would come. This is why the Bible uses the term Son of Man, describing Jesus. If there's any question here, I'm somebody who's descended from a woman. I mean, that's literally what he's saying. I'm one of you. I'm a human being. Why is that important? Because that's how the promise would come. They were studying the Scripture. They got lost in the plan and missed the purpose. Come on, don't we do that? You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me. Why? To have life. This will change your whole understanding of the Bible. You won't be on a cloud playing a harp with a naked baby with wings or propped up by a jukebox at a fishing hole when you die or any other retarded thing. You are waiting for life. If death is the problem, life is the solution. What is eternal life? It's life that doesn't end. Eternal life. We have a flame by John F. Kennedy's grave. It is called the eternal flame. Why? It doesn't go out. It's continually fed. And eternal life is a life that is uncomplicated by death because death has been removed. I have run out of time, but the problem that was introduced on this side of the room, death, that grew in strength and dominated people for 4,000 years at a point in history marked in the ground by a cross, then began to be reversed because the time had come when those who would hear would live. And we are hearing and we are experiencing the power of His life. And a time yet lies in the future where we will come out of the graves at His voice. That is the resurrection. Now, if you think I'm off of my rocker, take the word resurrection. Look at it in the book of Acts. In almost every two chapters in the book of Acts, they are preaching the resurrection from the dead. Not just Jesus' resurrection. It's not such a word as Jesus's, but you understand what I mean. But our resurrection from the dead. I want to read one more scripture. You don't have to turn there. I rarely ever lie when I'm preaching, so I think you can trust me for this at this point. But it's in Isaiah, provided I can find Isaiah. I read this a lot. and that's I read from Isaiah a lot. Why might I do that? There's 66 books in Isaiah. 39 deal with the Old Covenant, 27 deal with the New, just like there's 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New. Isaiah is called the Messianic prophet. And I tell you, friends, 740 years before Jesus, he saw him pretty powerfully. In fact, in Isaiah 53, when he said it was the Lord's will to crush him, what a confusing statement. Why would it be the Lord's will to crush him? Because he had to submit to death to show that he had power over it. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Listen to this though. On this mountain, the the Lord, this is uh, Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty, that's Yahweh Adonai, will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of His people from all of the earth. On this mountain. Anybody have an idea what mountain that was? Well, Isaiah looked, not Isaiah, Abraham looked up and saw it in the distance. It's where he almost sacrificed Isaac. The Romans took Jesus to it. 
The Muslims have built a shrine on it. Moriah, Golgotha, Calvary, all the same place on this mountain. When Abraham was there with Isaac, what did he call it? What did he call that mountain? Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh, on this mountain the Lord will provide. There was a singular place in history, a singular mountain where God would wipe away the disgrace of human beings. The shroud, what's a shroud? It's a covering when you're dead. Would be removed from all peoples. They'd no longer cry. They'd no longer be subject to death. There is a day coming and a time that has come now. A time that's come now and a day yet to come. The day that has already come is the cross. We believe on it. We listen. We hear. And now we wait for the day that is coming. The problem with death, the answer is life. Isaiah promised it. Genesis promises it. Exodus promises it. There's not a book in the Bible that is not on this topic. If you look for it, it's there. If you want to do yourself really good, start in Corinthians 15.1 and read to the end of the book of Corinthians. Paul had such a firm grasp on this that it totally defined his ministry. He was on trial for preaching what? The resurrection. He had the same hope as all of Israel. What? The resurrection. You hear it in all of his teaching. Said, why should you think it's strange that God raises the dead? You hear it all the time. But in Corinthians 15, he lays it out there. He said, all that were in Adam, die. All that are in Christ, live. He is the first fruits. He's the down payment of the power of life. We saw it work in him. He says he'll cause it to work in us. It will. And then he goes on to teach what kind of body we're raised in and why. And that the power of death is robbed of its glory and its power. Because it's swallowed up in victory. That's what it teaches on. That's what it's about. Now, we're going to have to close there. But next time you look at your body and you see that it's dying, you look at acts of your body and realize this is more from the tree of knowledge of good and evil than my leading from God, we can fight against it because we are promised life. Incidentally, Moses was promised a prophet that would come after him. Do you remember what you had to do? Listen to him. Again, a singular human being that you had to hang on his every word. It's what was promised to Eve. The promise developed all through history and was answered in the man from Galilee. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.